0: And ultimately, right, it's, it's the old adage, right? You throw the widest net, you catch the most people, you put them all in a hyper-competitive environment, which we do, and ultimately, who ends up at the top? It's the guy who is most optimistic about the income at the, at the real estate level. It's the guy who's the most aggressive at the expense underwrite, and the person who we can pair with the most aggressive debt and equity options. Mm-hmm. And that person, 100 times out of 100, is the buyer on the deal. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win
1: at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. On today's show, we have Michael Sullivan, who's the founder of MMG Real Estate Advisors. They have completely uh, blown up and are really uh, revolutionizing the brokerage space. Uh, They're based here in Kansas City, but they have deals going on in over 30 states and 14,000 units uh, on the market right now. Today, we talk about how to build relationships with brokers, what the space looks like. Um, the story of how Michael got started over 19 years ago, the different trends that he's seen and the changes in the space. And I think that uh, if you listen to all the way to the end, you're going to grab some some really good golden nuggets out of this episode. Welcome back to the Invest for the Win podcast. On today's show, we have Michael Sullivan of MMG Real Estate Advisors. Michael began his career in commercial real estate back in 2005 and has since cemented himself as a major player in the multifamily space, through his relentless drive to deliver a comprehensive brokerage model that does one simple thing assists clients in maximizing the value of their multifamily holdings. In 2013, he began partnering with Alex Blag- Blagojevic, Did I say it Blago- right? Blagojevich, close. Blagojevic and yeah. an extended team of top notch talent to subsequently close more than more multifamily across 130 unique markets in 34 states, which is just uh, just astonishing. Uh, They then co-founded MMG Real Estate Advisors in 2021 as the logical next step in their quest to help property owners minimize risk and maximize opportunities. And I have been uh, able to uh, firsthand witness this growth um, and Um, have uh, been able to engage with a lot of Michael's employees and himself over the years and it's just been wonderful to to watch and Michael so I just wanted to provide a brief overview of who you are and your experience but tell us through your eyes, you know, starting with how did you get to being a top multifamily broker and leading what seems to be the fastest growing multifamily brokerage around. Yeah,
0: absolutely. First off, uh, thanks for having us. Um, you know, we've watched obviously your guys' explosive growth, um, that, that I would argue probably mirrors ours, if not, if not, uh, trumps it. So, um, great to be on and obviously a, a favorite, uh, Avenue and podcast of mine, uh, to get some good industry knowledge from the other side of the table. Yeah. Um, so, so good to, uh, to be on and hopefully can provide a little bit here but um yeah i mean in general you know i started my career um back in 0304 uh at Marcus and Melichap. um yeah. you know it was it was the place that would give Uh, a young guy out of college, an opportunity in the, in the real estate brokerage space, which uh, as, as as I'm sure you're aware is, is not an easy place to get started in. Um, You know, they want people who are experienced and, you know, it's one of those chicken and egg situations where it's like, how do I get experience without, uh, you know, being able to get a job in the space? So, um, you know, started off there, started off very small. Um, I kind of focused on the Northeast part of Kansas City. Um, really struggled to get any traction. i told the story before, but um, you know, just took an ad out in the paper with with a uh, kind of a, a, an illusion of a listing, um, yeah. and was able to uh, to take that and, and get a couple listings and, and work our way up through there. But you know, the career really was was one of a very traditional nature until about 2011, when, as you mentioned, Alex and I partnered. Alex was a uh, had a very similar uh, idea about the business. Uh, that that the business should be handled in a, a regional at minimum level, if not a national level. Um, and if there was so many synergies between secondary and tertiary markets across mm-hmm. the country that no one was exploiting and no one was taking advantage of uh, the ability to, to take capital, uh, move it between these secondary and tertiary markets, um, and, and effectively change people's business. When When we started in the business, the business was very localized from an ownership standpoint. So, you know, if you looked at Kansas City at the time, I think there were 10 or 12 groups that owned over 8,000 units in yeah. Kansas city. If you look at that same ownership statistics today, uh, there's only one group that owns over 8,000 units in Kansas city. So um, you know, it, the, the, the business has drastically changed over that period of time. Um, and we have continued to try to change with it. And, and one of the things um, that we really keyed on early was, was what I just mentioned was the willingness and ability of a lot of these groups as they matured professionally, to becoming full service, uh, real estate investment platforms like your, like the, you know, the one that you had was a willingness to move throughout the marketplace and they just needed help in doing that. Right. One of the big issues for, for groups like yours is it's almost impossible to effectively attack every market in the country, um, because you guys have to identify those markets, understand those markets, mm-hmm. then nurture and, and uh, develop brokerage relationships that are going to be advantageous in your ability to acquire real estate. Um, and then, you know, hopefully have an opportunity to, to buy a piece of real estate. And then you got to figure out how to run it in that market, right? Individual yeah. vendors, um, you know, those third parties that are so crucial to your success. Uh, at the property level. Um, And then to do that over and over and over again in multiple different markets is is a very tall task. And and it's one of those things that we feel sets us apart a little bit at MMG working literally on a fully collaborative national platform um, where we can help um, identify markets and bring pipeline of of opportunities to um, investment groups um, at a much more effective Um, And a larger volume uh, than a lot of our competitors. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So um, Alex and I've always had that goal since we started in in 2011 working together. Um, You know, we stayed at Marcus uh, until the middle part of 2015. Mercadia had approached us. We were looking at several national firms. Mercadia had approached us. They had a significant gap in coverage um, in the Midwest, specifically in Mid South, where where our core focus had had grown to, um, and we, uh, one of the things that was was difficult in our business was the finance the financing piece of the business. Right for sure. for most brokers, um, you know, the you get involved in the deal, you market the deal, um, and you get to this point about halfway through through the due diligence period where everything goes dark. Um, it goes behind the financing you know, curtain and um, you're kind of sitting there with your fingers crossed, hoping everything works out uh, while the while the uh, the sponsor and, and the buyer and, and then obviously their lending partner of choice is trying to work through all of the third party reports and the nuance of the deal and, and securing their financing. And we, we didn't like being behind that curtain and Bercadia provided an opportunity for us as one of the largest, you know, Fannie, Freddie and HUD combined lenders in the, in the country um, to get a little peek behind that curtain and to really start to understand the lending uh, piece of the business, and so um, you know, we we made the move over there. It was extremely uh, beneficial to us. We really enjoyed being there. Um, it was a great relationship for us for for the better part of six years, um, and we learned a lot about. the the financing piece of the business. And, and by the time we were done, we were, we were round tripping, meaning we were uh, helping finance for was financing between 30 and 40% of our deals on, on any given calendar year. So um, obviously a great revenue stream for us, but what it really provided us was an opportunity to increase uh, the certainty for our selling clients that their deals were going to get done when problems arose we were there we had the communication we were working with an internal colleague to help uh, alleviate any of those concerns answer any of those questions and ultimately make the the financing process much much more effective um, and so we stayed there um, you know one of the one of the beauties of the models at Percadia is that it's a very geocentric model from a brokerage standpoint you you work in your sandbox and um, that worked really well it was not an internally competitive environment like we had at Marcus and Millichap um, but for two guys who wanted, um, to work at the national level, it didn't provide the platform that necessarily met our next step. Um, right. So we had a ton of success in the, in the 12 or so markets that we were covering. We were the number one team at Bercadia and top five agents on a consistent basis individually. And, um, you know, we wanted the opportunity to help our clients across the entire country. And so again, sat back down, decided, Hey, what's the future hold for us? And, Um, you know, January 1 of uh, 2021, we decided to take the leap and start MMG.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for walking us through that. Um, A couple of things I wanted to follow up on. You said, you know, since 2003, Um, the industry has changed rapidly, right? There's been a lot of changes. Document a couple of those changes that you've seen. And maybe one of them being the uh, influx of capital into the multifamily space. I mean, I remember sitting down with some of my old real estate mentors. I say old, I just mean um, they are older than me. But at the same time, um, they said, why would we ever want Uh, Somebody living in our real estate, you know, and I think that notion has changed uh, quite a bit. So uh, maybe you can touch on that as, as well. But some of the other changes that you maybe have seen in the industry since the last 19 years or so.
0: Yeah, so I, the first I've already alluded to, right, which is the, the almost geographically agnostic approach to the business, right? Absolutely. Where, where, where things were very local are now very super regional, or regional, super regional, or national, um, depending on the companies that you're talking about. Um, but I think in general, one of the things that's allowed that transition to occur is a drastic increase in the professional nature of the investor in the space, right? So when I started, it was a lot of high net worth. Individ- you really had two groups, right? You had the high net worth individual who most likely made their wealth in some alternative fashion, right? They were a, they were either a high earning professional, they were they owned a business that they'd liquidated, um, and then those people sat down with their financial advisors or whomever and decided, hey, one of the things that I'd like to invest in is, is commercial real estate. I like the right. brick and mortar. I like that I can go touch it, um, and I want some diversion from my very traditional um, Wall Street based investment avenue. Sure. Um, and so what you've seen is a transition, or excuse me, there was that group. And then um, there was the secondary group, which was the true institutions. That's right. right. And I yep. think to your point, the true institutions outside of a very, very small handful in the first part of this century really had no interest in investing in commercial real estate and definitely didn't have any interest in investing in multi. And even if they invested in multi, it was going to be in your absolute gateway markets, your New York, your San France, your Miami, those type of places. But there was very little truly institutional investment across the country into multi. And, you know, th- those groups, I think, really started as commercial real estate in general, whether it was office buildings, um, you know, retail seg- sector, as they had started to dip their toe into it, and you make the comparative um, analysis across all of the different asset classes, you start to really look at the fundamentals of multi and go, yeah, yeah you know, because to your point, the traditional deal was like, why would I have, you know, 300 tenants when I can have six? Well, when everyone really started to bear down on that, they were like, I can have 300 tenants instead of six. right?" And so that risk mitigation at the institutional level that's so requisite for them to make the move started to really make sense. And so um, a lot of the institutions started to come in and play in the multi-space. Obviously, that had an uplifting effect on the market as a whole. But what it also did was it provided um, that necessary security. From an investment standpoint, that a lot of private people needed to start making the move. So you started to see the the, the lending markets open at a much drastic at a much more drastic level, and with the you know the opening of the lending, it allowed um, what we call you know the creation of the uh, the private equity markets right. to open right, and this syndicated equity model that has really turned the industry on its head. Right. So instead of having to invest your own dollars and wait to a point where you had the requisite number of, uh, you know, the requisite down payment to make that, we started to see the inclusion of, hey, why don't I put five, 10, 20, 100 people together and let's buy a building together and we'll <laughs> operate it for you. So you started this whole model of syndicator and operator and then these this LP equity model that has completely Changed the, the industry, right? And, you know, again, those started at a, a, a somewhat local level. Um, and then we've seen them as they've grown in professional nature. And a lot of them, one of the big pieces of the business has been why don't we learn how to manage the, the assets ourselves instead of paying a third party manager to take this over? One, it secures our operation. But two, for the bottom line, it's great, right? We, we pick up that. Two, three, four, six, eight percent that was not was going out the door to something that we can now do in in house. And even if it's a loss leader for a lot of people, they just feel much more secure about the operation. And well, once we brought the operations in house, there was no longer that inability to move to new markets. Right? We just had to learn. Yep. We had to hire the right people. Um, and so you've seen the professionalism of the industry change. And now you've got shops that are small in number but very, very capable of doing business across a, of a very, very wide swath of geography. And that's probably the biggest change, those two, the, the, the move to the private syndicated equity world um, and then the, uh, the geographic reach. Yeah. And the professionalism, really, I mean, of, of the entire group, right? It's, not, it's no longer dominated by mom and pops and institutions. There's an entire middle sector of the industry now that has made it much more dynamic. Um, and much more professional in nature across the board.
1: Those are great points and call outs. I would say that um, we talk a lot about the Jobs Act of 2012, which really, you know, you, you didn't really allude to this part, but is, is the crowdfunding of, of equity as well, right? I mean, that's right. the another piece that's really kind of thrown this industry, you know, um, a, a lot of new capital uh, for folks to to kind of invest in and and making it easier for people to invest in as well, which I think is, is a good thing whenever it's done right, the right way. Um, So one of the, one of the points that I wanted to kind of key in on as well was, um, you know, as you think about the last two years, you know, back in 2020, it seemed like there was a little bit of a lull right after COVID happened with transaction volume and things like that. And that showed up, we got the reports back, but last year, was a roaring year for for multifamily. And I just got an email this morning, um, you know, Blackstone buys American campus communities for $13 That is one of five of those emails that I've seen um, this year. And so when you think about, you know, where the industry is right now and where the, you know, obviously we have things going on with rising interest rates. We still have super high inflation. We got a war, we got global pandemic, you know, the industry in 2021 um, was the best year, I think, ever. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what are you forecasting for for this year? Are you seeing the, the same or is there going to be, you know, are you seeing kind of a, a drop down on transaction volume? What are sellers really saying out there?
0: So, yeah, I mean, 20, 2020, 2021 um, are, are intimately linked, right? You had, you had the lull that you talked yeah. about and, and some of the push, uh, at least early in the year. For 2021 was just simply pent-up demand. Right. Right. We had a lot of people, those professional investors who rely on this industry, multi in particular, um, to to make a living. And you know, anytime, you know, if I look back over my 20 years, the the multi-industry is relatively resilient to Mm -hmm. gradual change of any kind right? Whether it's fundamental to the real estate, whether it's fundamental to the to the investments, interest rates, those type of things. As long as we see, you know, interest rates are obviously a hot topic right now. Sure. Gradual increases, right? The industry can sustain that because one of the things the industry loves is just predictability. Um, and if people can wrap their head around, hey, if in the next 30 to 60 days while I'm making a transaction, I feel comfortable that I can accurately peg my interest rate, for example, they'll make the transaction. Now, whether or not the pricing stays flat or continues to grow or decreases, those are all um, you know direct results of a combination of those factors. sure. Um, and so when you ask what, what do I see for the future I, I still am very, very um, high on the success and continued success and velocity of the apartment markets and mm-hmm. and you'll hear there's certainly a lot of chatter right now about interest rates and in, you know in particular. but to my point, as long as it's predictable, I feel really confident that transactions are going to continue. One of the reasons being that a lot of the assets that are trading hands today are assets that were acquired in 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, right? There is so much equity in those deals. Um, As interest rates go up, it makes refis more difficult, right? Right. Naturally. So you've kind of taken back the ability to just simply sit on the deals and and, tr- and and take uh, advantage of a lot of the of the created equity so what does it leave you to it leaves you to potentially either hold that deal as is which the debt is prohibitive in a lot of those cases whether it was short- term or na- in nature or it was it just not designed beyond the original business plan mm-hmm. right so you're starting to come up with the next couple of years of a maturity um but on top of that it you know if you're looking at deals that have made you know 30 40 50 percent from an equity standpoint, is a seller who's run through an entire investment model still willing to sell the deal? Maybe if he only, if they only make twenty or thirty percent. My assertion is yes, right, because they've got investors who are pressuring them. They've got business models that have been exhausted. Yep. They've got loan maturities, um, and fundamentally, the apartment industry is flying. You're seeing rent growth that we've never seen, and it's no longer localized. To these huge gateway markets. I mean, right. you're seeing we pulled the we pulled the rent growth this morning in Johnson County um, on a deal we're working on currently. You know, it's projected at nine percent this year. Yep, six percent next year, five percent the year after. Well, we can absorb a lot of interest rate increase with those type of rent growth numbers. Mm-hmm. And and so, does the game change a little bit? Um, is the velocity on par with 2021? We'll see. What I can tell you is, you know, we we collect offers on. Anywhere between four and eight uh, eight deals a week um, with, the, with the entirety of the MMG platform. I have yet to see a retrade on interest rates. I have yet to see the top end of our BOV not consistently being met. What we are seeing a little bit is a thinning of a matrix. So where we may have had 20 offers on a deal with the top numbers being, you know, the top tranche being five or six. Maybe it's 15 with the top tranche being three. Um, But a lot of groups are just saying, you know, the groups that are backing out are simply saying, hey, look, we're just going to wait and see for the next 30 days. This is not a, hey, we're out because interest rates are going to be closer to four and a half or five. Um, We've heard horror stories like that. I'm just not seeing it. And we're currently transacting in over 30 states. Um, So I I feel like we would be seeing it. I'm seeing emails from other brokers that are doom and gloom. You know, every, uh, you know, we've heard of a deal in Scottsdale where every one of the 10 groups in best and final backed out of the deal. Mm. Uh, Something clearly more than just market conditions. Hearing about deals in Florida that the world is turned upside down and I'm, we can't even get anybody engaged in deals. Again, I can't speak to everybody's business. I'm just, I'm not seeing it. But the, you know, for us, we've got over 14,000 units on the market. I'm not seeing it. Yeah. Will we? Probably. Um, but we're also trying to be very upfront with groups. Now, what we are seeing is a transition in execution strategy. So groups that may have been higher leverage debt people, they're, they're, they're moving into that mid leverage debt. We've also got a lot of groups who have the ability because of dry powder to switch and now they're offering all cash as an advantageous deal, right? In, in an offer, it's like, hey, we're not going to take financing. We'll finance it afterwards. You guys don't worry about that. But that's why we're the number one group for this deal. Mm-hmm. So those type of movements are certainly being made. But again, I think those are just reactions to how do I position myself as a potential buyer into being the
1: most um, you know, attractive choice at the end of the process? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I And I've, I've noticed that a few of those shifts, I think, uh, very similar in in gentlemen's like mine and FTW's investment thesis. You know, I think that they're really thinking hard about the debt that they're going to put on the deal and probably going in a little bit lower leverage. It means more equity. That's fine. Uh, um, You know, and I I was listening to uh, Dr. Peter Lineman on Willie Walker's podcast um, earlier today, and I follow him very, very closely. And he's like, look, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, interest rates are going to go back to where they were in 18 and 19, you know, like, I mean, right. deals were still getting done then yeah. as well. And when you think about it from that standpoint, but also throw in uh, the supply and demand thesis, as well as there is no alternative, I still think there's a good runway um, here in the apartment world. Uh, and I'm, I'm seeing it. And, and I think that there's a, uh, a still a really good opportunity We've shifted some of our thought processes around trying to, uh, and this is not just because of the conditions we're in right now, but but also is getting into nicer assets, and and it's more from an operational standpoint, um, and also not knowing where the heck labor and construction costs are going to be um, over the next you know six to twelve months either is is one thing that you know we're we're, we're thinking about is is well maybe I will go put sixty percent leverage on a deal, lock it in for ten years. And, um, you know, be very safe in that in that alternative. And so I think that so one of the things that we've we've seen quite a bit is kind of a reshifting and a refocus of, of um, you know, investors expectations when it comes to real estate deals. Yeah. Last couple of years, you know, those high to no, you know, mid 20 mid percent IRR deals. Those were beautiful deals to get into. But who's to say that somebody won't get into a class B 2015 deal for 14 percent IRR? What else right. are you going to go do, you know? And so I think right. that there's, that's just going to take some time, I think, to, to kind of ripple through. But I'm I'm talking to a lot of sponsors, a lot of investors, and, and it seems to me that a lot of people are on that same kind of bandwagon and, and thought process as we are.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And and I think it's, it's why I feel so bullish, right? There's so many right. different p- types of people in the marketplace that you're not relying on one group to maintain the velocity of the market anymore, uh, where we were in previous cycles. Um, and to your point, when you look at them on a historical basis, even these high interest rates that we're talking about right now aren't high. Yeah. You know, so they're they're, they're still very, very doable. Well, we have to make some pricing adjustments potentially, um, but but with the with the aggressive nature of the capital in the marketplace right now and the rent growth that I alluded to earlier, I don't I don't think we're at that point yet.
1: Yeah. You you mentioned, you know, having 14,000 units on the market right now, 30 states kind of going on. What are some of the, the biggest mistakes that you've seen with people kind of getting into commercial real estate and, and trying to, you know, transact? You know, a lot of people ask me all the time, you know, Logan, how do I, how do I build relationships with uh, the brokers? You know, how do I do that? What do I need to do successfully? But um, and, and a lot of them are the mistakes that I see uh, happen. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on some of the biggest mistakes you maybe have seen with people trying to get into the space and or interacting with MMG or other brokers out there.
0: Yeah, I'll answer it in two fronts. The first being, you know, what deal what deal mistakes do I see people make? And, um, you know, I, I think the only consistent deal mistake uh, we see folks make is just um, errant assumptions, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's, you know, at the at the property level from a capital standpoint, whether it's a rent um, situation on the back end of a value add play, um, you know, one those are probably the biggest two, right? Undercapitalizing a deal. Yeah. Um, but the other one I think is a little more hidden and it's a little bit harder to see. And that's that's the long-term capital needs of an asset, right? And especially in assets that groups look to buy and move into and out of relatively quickly, right? And for whatever reason, right? It's kind of like when you buy your your own home, right? Everybody's going to be there for this number of years. And then you wake up that number of years plus 10 more. And you're like, wow, we still haven't moved yet. Um, (laughs) and, And so you see a little bit of that. Um, on the investment side, right? Where a, a deal that you were going to get into value add 20 to 40% of the units be out of in three years, for whatever reason, you've decided to hold a little bit longer. And the capital budgets on those deals, not necessarily at the value add level, but just the, the, the asset preservation capital budgets sometimes aren't in line. And, and so, especially in the syndicated equity world, if you've allocated to do X number of projects over X number of years, and all of a sudden you hold that deal for twice as long, it becomes a very awkward situation where yeah. you haven't capitalized the deal long-term in an appropriate manner. It's not time to refi um, yet, or that's not in line with everyone's ideas. Um, and it's a really hard conversation as someone who's, who's done it at a much smaller level to go back to your investors and be like, hey, oops, um, I need more money. Right. Um, especially yeah. you know, in a lot of these deals where they were bought at very, very aggressively from sure. a cap rate standpoint, they were underwritten with very aggressive value add terms. And those investors may or may not have seen a return yet. Now they, the, the asset is probably worth more money, just organic growth during the marketplace because it's accelerated so greatly, but they're not seeing that cash back to them. Um, and so for, for inexperienced real estate investors, um, I think they struggle to understand value increase mm-hmm. at the property level. Um, as a notable return, sure. right? Because you can't really realize that until you sell the real estate. And so um, those are probably the big ones undercapitalizing a deal, both in the short and long-term or overvaluing what you can do at the value add play. And then, you know, when, when you switch it a little bit to the second part of your question is what do I see people making mistakes on as far, and I'm regardless of MMG or anybody, um, you know, but inside a deal process, I think it's just over promising. Um, you know, it, it, I, I certainly understand the need to get deals under contract, right? Sure. You, you've got to be able to get a deal under contract and win it in order to perform. But I would highly encourage investors to, those first couple of deals are vitally important that they go well in the brokerage community and in the investor community. Um, if you come in and overpromise and then can't perform, you're probably not getting another shot. And I think there are groups that underestimate the amount of communication that goes on internally um, between brokers and between the market and between sellers um, and and all of that kind of stuff. And if you get a reputation in the marketplace of not being a closer, it can be something that will haunt you for years and years and years and years and, Um, and, uh, you know, vice versa if you get the reputation of being a closer, it's something that can take a relatively small group and propel them, you know, very, very quickly into a preferred selection seat um, for a lot of brokers. I mean, at the end of the day, right, we're as a broker, we're in a in a somewhat difficult situation, right? You as a seller, you trust us to pick the guy, the, the, the group, right, that's right. going to execute. And if we don't, it's very difficult for us to come back towards. And so we're naturally out of self-preservation going to lean towards the, the most secure option. And a lot of times as a seller that can result in, um, you know, working down a matrix, which I, I still will encourage anyone to take surety of clothes over the idea of the highest proceeds, right. right. Especially in a marketplace like today. So, um, you know, we when you make your way into the space as a new investor start smaller buy deals build a track record get references and make your way up the ladder and when you're when you're comfortable and willing and able to transact at the next level of deal size make the move but in my opinion you're better off staying smaller and being successful than trying to make that big jump into two, three, four hundred units that you're competing against very large private groups, very large institutional groups, stretching, and 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 having to make that inevit- you know that inevitable call of hey you know we didn't underwrite this correctly or you know the agencies aren't willing to finance this because of x y and z or you know whatever the number is yeah. or whatever the excuse is because um, it can be a kill shot to your business
1: yeah absolutely great advice and great points to to be made there so you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about this was, you know, I've been watching the growth. It's been exciting, astonishing to watch, but I'm really curious. So, you know, what is your method? So when you're sitting down with a property owner and what is the method necessarily that you go through to, to adding value to those sellers that's going to say, hey, you know, we, you can go with other firms, right? Um, sure. But MMGs, your, your service, you know, this is, this is the group you want to go with. Like, what is that? What is that? I mean, because I've been seeing, like you mentioned 30 States, 14,000 units, that's just stuck in my head. It's an amazing um, number. and It's a great feat. but that you're, you're, you've got something there for sellers that they're, you know, they're they're hearing that's uh, giving them the confidence, right? And I, I just kind of want to pull that out and and um, learn a little bit more about the not necessarily secret sauce, but the methodology that MMG goes through when you're when you're working with a property owner.
0: Yeah, I mean, good news about uh, our secret sauce. We're willing to share it. So because um, it is to your point, I think it's what differentiates us yeah. from a lot of our competitors. And and as context of the comment, because I do think you have to understand the context of the traditional brokerage model to understand why we are a little bit different. And um, the, the traditional brokerage model is very localized, mm-hmm. right? So while you have other national firms um, that preach collaboration, preach teamwork, preach this national platform, right? That you hear all about all the time. What you've really got is a bunch of individuals who work in siloed marketplaces that all wear the same team colors. There's very little collaboration. There's very little communication um, across the entire platform. Do they? Ex- does the information and data exist to be collaborative? A hundred percent. The big companies in the industry have a database that includes a vast majority of transactions, all of the active buyers, all of that. But at the end of the day, as a broker, that information is great to have, but unless it's being used effectively, it's worthless. Yeah. And, you know, I've worked at two of the biggest firms in the country. And again, it's why we formed MMG was, you know, Of all the time we were at Mercadia, for example, so six years, hundreds and hundreds of transactions, we were only brought in and our team was big. You know, we had 14 producers um, over there. We were brought in on just a handful of deals from across the country. And and, and what that tells me is not something like, hey, there's an internal issue there. It's um, brokers aren't really interested in the traditional model in helping their clients outside of their sphere of influence. Because it's not a monetizable event for them. Mm -hmm. And as much as we would love to say that everyone's willing to do what's best for their clients all the time, at the end of the day, if you're not going to get paid for it, most brokers will make the decision to just say, hey, you know, I'm your guy in KC or St. Louis or Memphis or Atlanta or Birmingham. But when you need someone else, have someone else. You know, I'm happy to make an introduction, but I'm not going to actively work on your behalf. And that's what we're trying to change, right? So what you've got is a bunch of local brokers forming a national firm at, at the, in a the traditional model, and they're very transactional in nature. What we're establishing is a completely collaborative and cooperative platform that works together across the entirety of the country. Mm-hmm. We now have offices coast to coast. And what we're doing is we're taking all of our direct personal relationships with our clients and enabling our brokers um, to not only have knowledge, but deal flow in their lap across the entire country. So when their client who's based, when, when you guys, for example, come to me and you say, hey, we just identified Atlanta as a new market we'd like to go to, I can help you there. Right. I don't just I don't just make an introduction and pass you off. So what we're trying to create is a group, is a, is a national firm with an entire base of national brokers. Mm-hmm. So you guys now have to rely on one person to deal with across the entirety of the country, obviously with the buttress and the help of the local experts, right? To give you what you need from a local, but you don't have to go out and create brokerage relationships with everyone across the country. And one of the things that we created in order to magnify that result is Brett Minzer, who I know you're, you're, um, uh, you know, very familiar with But Brett runs our execution team. And what our execution team is, is it's a group of brokers that are solely focused on executing on behalf of the listings we already have. So the primary broker, the person who brought the deal in, who reps the territory and does all the, the normal stuff also has this group that is working exclusively with buyers across the country to help them identify new opportunities, help them identify and understand new marketplaces um, and transition their capital at a more effective pace than the traditional model has allowed them to do. Um, And what that does for MMG as a whole is really the secret sauce for why we're different. It's we more effectively transition capital than any other group in the country. And it's a multifaceted approach that I just went over, but that's the secret anymore, right? That If you look at almost every transaction in the country that was effectively brokered, was a competitive environment, most likely over the last two to three years, the group that has been the ultimate buyer of that real estate is a group that was not engaged in that marketplace before, right? We've seen your guys' expansion into Iowa, yeah. You know, why you were willing to pay, maybe not pay more, but provide a better offer or sure. pay more uh, a lot of the times. And, and so you hear the old adages like that's stupid California money or it's stupid coastal money or it's stupid out of market money. What we try to encourage people to understand is it's not stupid. It's different. Yeah. Right. You have for whatever reason you you or these other groups right, have identified this particular asset. And whether their cost of capital is lower, their demand internally, they've got a 1031 exchange. They've got a fund that once they clear that fund out, they get allocated their next fund. All of these different things, uh, an asset down the street that's small in scale that now they can add operational efficiency to, all of these things will, at certain periods of time, make that buyer more aggressive than the marketplace. And so our goal is to identify those groups, help them move their capital at a more efficient pace. Um, And ultimately, what does that mean for our sellers? We have a deeper buyer pool. We have a buyer pool that is focused specifically on their asset, not on that rear view approach of I could have, I I saw that back when, I could have bought it then, I could have bought it for this, all of those negative things. Or candidly, they may not have the intimate knowledge of the neighborhood that allows that or that creates a little bit of a tenseness with that particular buyer that's localized um, that prevents them from getting to the top end of the matrix. Right. You know, and ultimately, right. It's it's the old adage, right. You throw the widest net, you catch the most people, you put them all in a hyper competitive environment, which we do. And ultimately, who ends up at the top? It's the guy who is most optimistic about the income at the at the real estate level. It's the guy who's the most aggressive at the expense underwrite and the person who we can pair with the most aggressive debt and equity options. Mm -hmm. And that person, a hundred times out of a hundred, is the buyer on the deal.
1: Right. Yeah. And so we
0: do that more effectively than a lot of our our people, because the the groups that we compete against, take Kansas City, for example, right? For a traditional broker who focuses in Kansas City, their buyers come from three different groups, right? They have to, They, they come from groups who already own in Kansas City groups that have owned in Kansas City and are re-looking to insert the market or someone somewhere who has identified Kansas City as a potential marketplace for them, right? There's no way for that person to effectively go out and create a buyer who's not looking in the marketplace because what are you going to do? You're going to call every investor. So the traditional model, right? We're going to result, we're going to send out unqualified email traffic. Well, the problem is everyone thought the same thing. So we're gonna say, to your point, how many emails do you get a day with <laughs> deals on them across the country? If you're not looking in Kansas City, even if you see the email, you're like, yeah, Kansas City, not a market, for, I'm, not, I'm not there, right? What we do is we handle our personal relationships Everyone knows our entire inventory internally, and we're able to have conversations with those folks, yep. both through our execution team and our primary brokers who are continuing to develop relationships with the clients across the country. And they're able to explain to the clients by understanding their own personal business model, hey, here's a deal that I think you need to look at. Here's why and, and results. And I could go on deal story after deal yeah, story after yeah. deal story, but I won't bore you with them. But at the end of the day, that ability to effectively transition capital into new marketplaces is our secret sauce, and we do it better than anybody else in the country.
1: Yeah, I I, I would agree, and um, I think you you put that process out very uh, thoroughly. Um, one question on it is, um, when when you when you think about that model, was that something that was Incepted in yours and, and Alex's mind, like, hey, this is a problem that we see that we want to solve. Did you did you hear somebody else talking about it or is it just did it just kind of come about from, you know, the need that you saw in the marketplace and you went and solved that or working to solve that? A little bit of all three of those. Right? Okay. Um, what What Alex and I had in common before we
0: started to work together was. We worked in multiple markets by choice, right? So I never I, I had always looked at how can I mitigate my risk um with regard to um my business by not being completely captive to the Kansas City marketplace,
1: mm.
0: right? So if Kansas City has a drop in for whatever reason, sure. right? Let me give you St. Louis, for example, right? They had they had all of the the PR stuff that went on, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right? Um and that was something that really made it difficult for outside capitals to feel comfortable investing in St. Louis. So I didn't want to be captive to a single market. Uh, Alex felt the same way. He was based out of Chicago at the time. He didn't want to have to work in one market all the time and ride the ebbs and flows that are inevitable inside those marketplaces. Um, so we both started to work in multiple markets. Well, what you saw very quickly, while working in multiple markets was they operated virtually the same the assets throughout the Midwest at the time were very similar in nature. The drivers of the individual multi-projects were very similar. Um, There were nuances to each market from an economic standpoint, but they were all generally, the economic stacks were diverse. Um, They were made up of multiple different industries, right? Um, And they weren't captive really to one or two different employers. Um, And so you started to look at that and you're like, man, the guys who were buying from me in Kansas City, should buy some assets in St. Louis and they should yeah. feel pretty comfortable in Des Moines and you know and you kind of go down the list and that's where that idea of hey you know somebody who could effectively group all of the secondary and tertiary marketplaces across the country should be able to create an environment in a brokerage business that's extremely powerful mm-hmm. so that was the first step yeah. but then what we saw was you know, we kind of purposely focused on secondary and tertiary markets. Well, then by demand, when we went over to Mercadia, right, we had the sandbox we had to play it. Sure. Well, there were some core markets in there like Chicago, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, that were the top, top, top rental markets in the country. And we were like, well, hey, why, you know, does our same process work here in core Chicago, in core Nashville, mm-hmm. in the A space, you know, across all of these markets, And you know, we we started doing those transactions. And what we saw was the exact same thing. But what was even more interesting was what we saw and what we started to see on a consistent basis was those same investors who had been working with us in secondary and tertiary workforce housing, all of a sudden had made money to the point where they were now willing to compete for those core assets, whether they were in a market like KC, but now you're talking about the high-end class A beacon properties these guys had made so much money in the workforce space that they were now starting to creep up our offer matrix on the core assets because they were doing what you were just alluding to, right? What if I could now transition my capital into a little lower leverage stance because I've got all this found equity, but I can get an asset that was built in the last three to four years and I no longer have the capital demands and the operational demands at the property level. And so now we were in a really good position to offer something unique to our core selling clients, because we had 15 years of secondary and tertiary market buyers and operators yeah. who the true institutional brokers who were just trying to trade between the, 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 you know, the same group of folks because in theory they were the only groups that could be effective in that space and compete. Well, we were all of a sudden now able to bring those buyers up to that level right. and provide a whole new buying group. Right. And so oh, as the, yeah. As the institutions started to waver through market cycles, right, they're all Wall Street backed and they've got a, you know, all of a sudden Wall Street's not doing so well. Those groups aren't quite as aggressive where you saw dips and institutional buyers being willing to jump into the space. For example, during COVID, private buyers who had closed in Q1 of 2020 were willing to jump all because we had to stay proximate to their 1031 exchanges, mm-hmm. right, because they had to place their money, COVID or not right? They'd already made their transaction. They had their 180 days to transact. So we stayed really close to that deal, which is why we were extremely successful brokering and transacting deals across the country throughout COVID. Was it different? A hundred percent. Was it very 1031 exchange driven? Yes. But again, our platform of having personal relationships with guys all over the country, um, I'll give you a quick example. There was a client who sold a deal in Vail, Colorado, he walked out of the deal with $50 million that he had to place. He closed the deal late February, 2020. We ended up taking him, never worked with the guy, uh, but we got introduced to him through one of our deals that we took out in Omaha. He ended up buying a deal in Omaha from us, bought a deal in Kansas City from us and bought a deal in Indianapolis from us with that $50 million. Yeah. Great deal for all of us, right? We were able to transact on deals we had out during a very difficult time, but he was able to take a legacy asset and $50 million in transition. And his cash flow tripled yeah. at the assets by simply diversifying from one single asset holding to three holdings. But he also diversified at a marketplace level, he diversified at an asset level. Um, and he ended up in a far better situation from a retirement standpoint because his chunk cash flow was so much higher than his return was at the single asset in
1: yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I could ask uh, five or six different follow-up questions to that we'll have you back on to go through that. Uh, we're coming up on time. I really appreciate it, uh, Michael. I do want to ask you one question. So growing the business, um, you know, revolutionizing the brokerage world in, in a lot of different ways. Um, what inspires you? You know, why do you do what you do? You've obviously got a fire passion. I'm watching it. I'm talking to you. We're, we stay in touch and uh I just got to ask, you know, what what inspires you and, and what's that driving force?
0: Uh, twofold for us. Um, and they'll, they'll sound cliche, but they are. That's why Alex and I get out of bed every day. One is to, to the point you just made. We want to revolutionize the business. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want, we feel like we've got a unique position in order to do it. Um, it's going to take an absolute dismantling um, of the traditional powerhouse brokerage houses in order to achieve it because it requires things that people aren't willing to give. Teamwork, collaboration, yep. and work for free. Uh, There are a lot of times when our guys are helping each other out where they don't get to monetize their position immediately inside that deal. But a belief in the greater good um, and that you know the, the the better MMG is, the stronger the platform becomes, the better off it is for everybody. But most importantly, our clients from an advisory standpoint, um, which is our number one deal. So that's the first piece. How do we revolutionize the business? And we yep. feel like we're on our way to doing that and providing a, 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 an avenue of sale and disposition for our clients that's better than can be provided by anybody else. But the second piece of it, and I think probably the most important is, um, you've met most of our team, uh, at least locally here, the people, man, it's, it is yeah. fun to take folks, the, the, the comment I made at the very beginning of the, of the, uh, the show. So take this full circle, the young, the young hungry person who sees value in being in commercial real estate, but won't be given an opportunity. We get dogged on this all the time. Oh, you've got a bunch of inexperienced people over there. I'll put our guys up very, very quickly against any broker in the world because they get deal experience at a level that they don't see. These guys are underwriting deals on our national underwriting calls across the entire country. Tell me who else is doing that. They're not. We're also underwriting probably 30 to 40 deals a week. These guys get deal experience, intimate deal knowledge from across the country very, very quickly they're also intimately involved in executing on our business plan across the entire country. So they're seeing volume that most people would have to work a career for. you know, I mean, these guys that that are with us this year are going to see, um, we'll probably do somewhere close to $3 billion worth of transactions this year. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to see that at a very intimate level. Are they going to be intimately involved in every deal? No, but they're going to see it because we go over those deals. We sell them together. We work on them together. And so watching... And having the ability to take great brokers, whether they're new in the business or whether they've been in the business and are looking for a new start. I mean, we've got some guys we brought in. We've hired from every single large national firm at the brokerage level um, to to date. Um, We've got some guys who've been in the business for 20 years. We've got some guys who've been in the business for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but at the end of the day, by appropriately putting them in activities, they're all getting better. They all really believe in what we're building. And to me, that's the most exciting thing. We started with five people January 1st of 2021. Um, Today, we have 49 team members. Um, We will soon be surpassing 50. Um, I don't think Alex and I ever saw the company getting this big because um, we didn't understand how much there how much people, buy into what we're doing. We've gotten really, really lucky getting some really good experienced brokers to join us and some really good young talent to join us. Um, and I I tell you, I, I, I never thought we'd be this big and I'm probably most excited about seeing us surpass 100 team members, 200 team members, to the point where we don't have to answer questions anymore about whether we're a small little B two firm because, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, our numbers this year are going to put us probably in the top 15 brokerages in the country um, after after two years.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I I, I'm watching it happen, and I believe that you'll absolutely get there. And there's a there's a reason for that, and a lot of it you explained with that uh, approach, the teamwork approach. I think is is uh not something that's very common in our in our space and so um all right so if folks want to find more about mmg point them in the right direction michael
0: so uh you can you can hit us on www.mmgrea.com um we also have uh an instagram and a linkedin presence um if you want to kind of follow on a more intimate level um but uh yeah we'll reach out we love the personal conversations. I'd much rather talk to uh, to anybody who wants to know more about the company, or or if they think that we can help in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, we always love to be a resource, however we can, to any of our clients or or potential clients. So, um, just reach out, uh, get a hold of us, and um, you know, we'd we'd love to uh, to develop the relationship and see where it goes.
1: Well, thanks for being on, Michael. I found this extremely valuable. I know the listeners will as well. I appreciate your time.
0: Hey, we just appreciate the opportunity. So we're going to start our own here shortly. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to repay the favor and and come join us and tell us all about FTW and what you guys are up to.
1: We'd love to do it. Thanks, Michael. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.